Welcome back to Propel, Allen and Overy's podcast addressing all things related to self-driving cars. I'm Paul Keller, your host, based in Allen and Overy's New York office. Standard essential patents, SEPs or SEPs, fair, reasonable, and non-discriminatory licensing terms, FRAND. On this episode, we sit down with a geographically diverse panel of experts from China to France to the UK to discuss these terms and the implications for the automotive industry generally and the self-driving car market specifically. Our panel from China, Jill Ge. Jill is our IP counsel based in Shanghai, covering the full spectrum of IP litigation and transactions in China. She acts for both multinational and domestic PRC companies in IP matters, particularly in relation to multi-jurisdictional patent disputes. Out of her many moments of fame, her article on China's SEP practices was mentioned in an English Court of Appeals judgment. From France, David Poor. David is a patent litigation partner based in Allen and Overy's Paris office, specializing in tech patent litigation. He has litigated dozens of SEP cases over the last 15 years before French courts, including the French part of the Samsung versus Apple battle and coordinated EU-wide strategies in fields as diverse as mobile communications, video and sound codexes, and identification technologies. And from the United Kingdom, Mark Ridgway. Mark is a patent litigation specialist from ANO's London office. Mark, an electronic engineer, has spent the last 20 years working on technology patent and SEP cases, including, along with our other partners, on the famous, perhaps infamous, Unwired Planet case once it reached the UK Supreme Court. David, Mark, and Jill also work together with our other tech and SEP specialists across the world in representing our clients in fighting and defending tech patent and SEP cases. Jill, David, Mark, welcome to the program. Thanks, Paul. For having us. Thank you. David, let's start with you. What are standard essential patents, and why should the automotive sector even care about them? Um, let's uh, take a step back on this and start with what standards are. Standards are essentially commonly designed solutions for a technical problem that allow interoperability between the products uh, supplied by a diverse range of, of suppliers. Think about Bluetooth, think about mobile communications, think about JPEG. Those are just a few examples of, uh, of standards. So you will have industry standards that prescribe the way in which you need to manufacture your product so that it can interact, function with other products manufactured by others. And there are instances, there are actually quite a few instances, where a specific standard cannot be fully implemented without using the teaching of a patent or a number of patents that are owned by someone. In other words, simply by implementing the standard, you necessarily infringe on that or those patents. These patents, because they're necessary to implement the standard, are called standard essential patents or SEPs. Appreciate that, David. So apply that to the, the automotive industry generally and maybe the self-driving market specifically. What, what's in it for them? SEPs are becoming increasingly relevant to the automotive industry in general and even more so with the rise of the technology towards self-driving vehicles. That's on multiple aspects of standardized technologies. The most obvious one is mobile communications. How does your self-driving car communicate with the rest of the world, with the network, with other cars, et cetera, et cetera? You will need mobile communication technologies to achieve that. Think about 5G, for example. 
But a car also implements a range of other standardized technologies typically. It does deploy images, it does play sound, it has multimedia capabilities, it has Bluetooth communication facilities, etc., etc. So there's a wide range of standardized technologies that come into play in automotive in general and self-driving vehicles even more. Mark, the perspective from the UK, litigation risks related to SEP, SEPs, and the automotive industry? Yeah, well, just one additional point on what David's just said. I mean, we're talking today about SEPs. But one thing to note is that, you know, whenever we have litigation involving SEPs, there's always the possibility that along with those, there's litigation over non-SEPs or implementation patterns, as we would call them. So we want to make sure when we're thinking about this topic, we also are aware of what litigation strategies might exist alongside the SEPs. We're talking about risk to automakers from these patterns, both SEPs and non-SEPs, because your typical portfolio owner will hold both of them. On your question about the UK, we've actually not seen any automotive sector litigation in SEPs like France, like China. We've had an awful lot of litigation relating to um, SEPs, SEPs on smartphone technology. I mean, the wireless connectivity within those smartphones. It is only a matter of time, I think, before we see litigation involving automakers. For the reason that David gave, those technologies are already in the cars. You know, in reality, all of the big automakers now have had wireless technology in their cars for a few years. And from the point of view of the pattern owners, those are products on which a royalty should be paid. So it's a matter of time before we see litigation. We are, meanwhile, seeing deals being done. Not UK-specific, these will be out global deals, but we've seen licensing agreements being put in place between some of the obvious major portfolio owners and some of the automotive majors, both relating to vehicle level licensing and also further upstream and component level. That's no doubt something we'll talk about later on. I'm going to get into a detail here about the SEPs. You've already mentioned uh, kind of the broader landscape of what these things are. And Mark, you've touched on now the, of course, there's, uh, if you're utilizing these patents, that the patent owner is going to expect some royalties. But on the impact to the car market, and Jill, maybe we'll start with you a bit on this. David gave examples of Bluetooth and sound and other functionalities within the car that may use these technologies, but that doesn't cover the entire car. It covers individual components of the car. How does this play out in litigation? Is the injunction to stop using your Bluetooth? Is it stop using the car? Uh, what are the risks there for the automotive industry? Can you talk about that? Paul, you asked the question probably goes to the heart of litigation that needs to be conducted. I think up to now, people are still grappling at what levels licensing needs to be conducted. So um, to respond to your question, I guess we need to see future litigation. So right now, that is a risk. There is a risk that uh, given the current state of the law that an SEP, a SEP that relates to one component of the car could actually implicate the entire product. Right. Yes, by the nature of the patent law, and given the fact that the patented article is incorporated in the whole entire car. And I think what's quite interesting is when we look at the disputes for smartphones, that has been dubbed as a smartphone patent war. And one quite interesting analogy I've heard over the years is that these are like two drunk people punching each other uh, in terms of SEP litigation. So parties are fighting all over the world in five or even 10 jurisdictions. So the implication here is that would there be two drunk people punching each other for automotives? Uh, we don't know that yet. And what's, uh, what's bearing in mind is that all this type of SEP licenses, they are renewed 
once three or five years. So there will be repeated litigation down the road. So for automakers, when they are looking at what happened in the smartphone world, this I, I think is at least worry thing and they would need to put a lot of thoughts in terms of how they should start preparing for future potential litigation. David, any thoughts to share? Yes, one short thought on Jill's point about the injunction touching the entire vehicle. Today, there might be an arguable way out of this, which would be to remove the infringing functionality for the cars. So say, remove the entire Bluetooth. This is just an example. The entire Bluetooth capabilities of the car. Um, that would come at the price of industrial challenges and significant user experience. But in the future, when we're talking about autonomous vehicles, it will probably not be an option at all because these features will be at the heart of what the, the vehicle is going to be doing. Well, David, let's stick with you for a second then about trends in this marketplace and any that you might be seeing on how SCPs are being used by the patent holders and frankly, how the non-patent holders are reacting. Um, sure. There's probably a trend in the last couple of years uh, with the pendulum moving more in favor of patent owners and against implementers. There was a period of time of about maybe five years before that, where the case law all over the world was rather implementer friendly. Um, and because of that, patent owners had more difficulties enforcing uh, their patents. And as a result, also less license deals were signed globally. Uh, we've seen in the recent time a significant movement of that pendulum towards uh, patent owners, towards SCP owners, and it does result in a significantly higher number of deals being signed as well. That's right. I mean, when you then move into the auto sector and look at the trends there, well, it wasn't a trend, it was a, a stalemate for a, a number of years where litigation had been started involving a few auto sector players, a few of the big ones. Um, there was litigation, but no deals done. And what we've seen very recently is deals are actually now being signed, both at the car level related to the entirety of the product and also further upstream. And that flows from the point David made. The pendulum has swung, as it always does in patent law globally on various issues, but here talking about SEPs, swung in favour of the patent owner. Um, perhaps for that reason, deals have now been done. Those portfolio owners do have something of a track record now of licensing their patents in the auto sector. And for that reason, they will be expecting you know, further deals in the near future. Well, for our listeners here, um, from experts from the UK, from China, from France, um, you sitting in the United States, the discussion thus far seems to be rather forum neutral, that the experience for this SCP, the SEP litigation, from country to country to country can essentially address similar issues to similar results. And Jill, I'd like to direct this question to you. Is that right? Or is there still quite a bit of forum shopping going on where different countries are trying to protect their local industries? And I, I don't mean to pick on you uh, sitting in China, but for our listeners, they might be thinking that China is a place where the China courts may protect China industry. Any reaction to that? When it comes to litigation, there's always a dimension in terms of foreign shopping, and that's so true for SP litigation. And I think both David and Mark probably can better talk about from their uh, European and UK perspective. But when it comes to China, increasingly, uh, China has indeed become a key jurisdiction for SCP litigation, particularly in light of Chinese companies 
involving in multi jurisdictional disputes. Perhaps we can take one step back when we examining uh, what had happened in the past 10 or 15 years. So Chinese company, they started out as the phone makers. China was the biggest manufacturer and has been one. And in this regard, Chinese companies, they use the SEPs, they were the implementers. However, when they started to move after value chain, they have built up their patent portfolios. They become the top filers in this regard. So you have the likes of Huawei, ZTE, and so forth. And given that they are the big players now, so they inevitably become the targets of SEP litigation. So perhaps SEP actually has given the Chinese company the first taste of multi-jurisdictional disputes. So Chinese companies now go out, they litigate in, in the UK, in Germany, and this natural trend is also for them to look at their home jurisdiction as China is their home court. So inevitably, Chinese court has the role to play here. And the Chinese judiciary, I think, to some extent, has come to this awakening that they have a role to play. So about a few years ago, I think there's quite interesting comment from one of the senior high court judges in China. He said Chinese companies should start looking at antitrust litigation as a countermeasure in global front disputes. So I guess this explains part of the thinking behind the Chinese judges. And the trend has just become even more obvious uh, in the past two or three years as Chinese courts have become even more assertive. They are now saying that they are able, willing to adjudicate global front licenses. And this is all part and parcel of the global front uh, trends we have witnessed, especially in past year or so. Uh, Chinese courts have also engaged in this anti-suit litigation game and I think my colleagues will be able to shed some further light on all these. Well, I appreciate you raising those anti-suits um, and frankly, the Chinese perspective there on having judges expressly raise some potential defenses or claims um, that litigants can provide. That's somewhat telling. Mark, sitting uniquely in Britain now, post-Brexit, from the UK perspective, taking the opportunity of using SEP litigation to protect local industry, can you address that from your perspective and maybe unpack this concept that Jill mentioned of anti-suits and how that may play a role in UK litigation? Yeah, sure. In terms of protecting industry, I don't think that's part of the logic from the UK judges. The way I see it is the UK court has always tried to be a flexible forum that will give parties, litigants, the relief that they want or the declarations that they want that are useful to them to resolve their dispute. And so that's true across a range of industries and, and legal issues. But in the context of FRAND, the UK court had seen standard patent cases, by which I mean cases about infringement and validity of SEPs for a couple of decades, but had never really got to the, the nub of the issue, which is what is the appropriate royalty rate for these patents. And the, the Unwired Planet decision, which you mentioned at the top of the cast, was the example of the UK court saying, look, we see this dispute happening again and again. We see that the parties, or we think the parties need a court to help them resolve this. And actually, we can see a jurisdictional basis for doing so. Now, whether you agree with that or not, and we argued not, but in the end, what we have now is the UK court being willing to hear any party, um, parties coming to the UK court, and it will resolve the question of friend for those parties. It may take a few years, 
it'll be um, you know, reasonably expensive in terms of the legal fees and the process. But in the end, the UK court said, we are willing to solve this for you. Now, where does that then leave you? And where are we now? That's where you come to the anti-suit point. The UK court is taking jurisdiction over these global disputes. It was the first court to do so in the sense that it was the first court who would say, this is your friend rate. We've looked at the evidence and we are not only going to agree with one party or the other, but if we agree with neither party, we'll fill in the blank and say, here is your rate. That's essentially what they're doing. Um, that's fine, but understandably, some parties don't think that the UK, which is a pretty um, you know, medium-sized economy uh, in the world and has no real claim to be able to solve the world's problems, parties don't necessarily agree that the UK court should be doing this. And for all sorts of legitimate reasons and perhaps not so legitimate reasons, they might want a different court deciding that question. Um, it can be said to be perhaps lacking in comedy that the UK court puts itself in the position of deciding everything, and parties might legitimately ask a different court to do so. That's where anti-suit injunctions come in, where parties are quite predictably using the procedural tools that some courts make available to lock the dispute into the forum of their choice. So we're firmly in the realm of forum shopping, forum battles, um, and the, the anti-suit and the anti-anti-suit and the anti-anti-anti-suit is a, is a consequence of that. The way I'd put it is we're, we're dealing with the, the follow-on issues that came after Unwired Planet, and there's quite a few of them, as it turns out. Well, it's beginning to sound like now there's quite a bit of difference that might be taking place around the world as these different four are deciding what the approach is and where the dispute should be addressed. Uh, David, in France, in the EU, 500 million citizenry united. Is there a unified approach there at the SCP litigation? Patchwork quilt? Um, can you walk us through that and maybe a little bit more in depth on the injunctions uh, and the tradition of injunctions there and the implications it has on this discussion? Happy to do that. So the EU, as you were saying, Paul, is a fairly large region, and obviously it's composed of different countries with different legal systems. Much of the disputes have focused, as you were just saying, Paul, on the issue of when an SCP owner can obtain an injunction against an implementer of that technical uh, standard. And we were hoping for a period of time that we would get some unification on that point, some unification of the law on that, on that issue. Um, six years ago already, uh, there was a very important case by the Court of Justice of the EU in the matter of Huawei versus ZTE that laid down the approach that behavior that is expected of both the patentee and the implementer in the context of negotiations around uh, the potential front license. So there were a number of steps defined by the Court of Justice that were to be, are to be followed by each side. And then the Court of Justice said, essentially, if one of the sides doesn't follow those steps, that party will be sanctioned by being exposed to an injunction if it's the implementer that doesn't do uh, his job, or by forfeiting his right to obtain the injunction if it's the patentee. So we were hoping that this case would kind of solve it. Uh, six years down the line, it's fair to say that it hasn't solved everything because there are still a number of issues that are unclear and still a number of divergent approaches from national courts on uh, many of those questions. So the phenomenon of forum shopping that Mark and Joel both mentioned earlier is very much present within the EU as well. Uh, German courts are obviously very active Dutch courts have a slightly different approach, and it's become a recent trend by some litigants to come to the French courts now. On that, actually, 
The reason for this is that most judges on the continent have expressed an unwillingness to get into the dirty job of actually looking at numbers and setting or saying what the proper friend rate should be on a particular dispute. And there was a recent case by the French courts which held that they have jurisdiction to do so and would be willing to do so. Unfortunately, that case settled out. Unfortunately, from the perspective of knowledge and development of the law, that case settled, and therefore we won't have an actual determination on that one, even though there's another case pending. Turning to you, Jill, the United Kingdom is fully prepared to set global SEP and FRAN rates, addressing even, frankly, the business terms of that deal. European tradition, reluctant to do so, but the French courts now have raised their hand and say, we're prepared to do that as well. Similar approach in China? where they will take on these disputes and set these global rates, even though the dispute is anchored in China? Or is there a different approach that they're taking to these entirely? Thanks, Paul. I think this is a really good question. And I think at the end of last year, Chinese court said affirmatively uh, they wanted and they have jurisdiction and will be able to set out or adjudicate front terms. That's the sharp case. And but up to now, no Chinese court has actually done that. And that exercise, I would imagine, will require some expertise from court in terms of damages. However, uh, our experience, we can tell you that damages law historically has been quite seen in China because Chinese courts have the tendency to use the so-called statutory damages to dispose of a case. So the, the judge will assign a number when they decide uh, the damages in a patent infringement case. So that's the background and the backdrop, uh, I would imagine. But we, we so look forward to see it once uh, the Chinese court would hand down uh, front license and what that will be. In terms of your broader question as to uh, whether, whether there's more divergence or convergence in terms of the court's approach, I think this has been something on our mind over the years because these are multi-jurisdictional disputes and as practitioners, we do want to point the clients whether there's any consistency in terms of court's approach. And one unique aspect about Chinese courts is that they are so good in terms of learning and adopting practices from other jurisdictions. For example, David mentioned about Huawei ZT case, and I still recall vividly, probably back in 2016 at an international conference, David was talking about the ping pong game, and that's the Huawei ZT case. And that framework was actually adopted in one of Chinese court's judicial guidelines. And there are all cases talking about similar framework to assess the party's willingness or unwillingness. And when it comes to anti-suit injunction, which is definitely one of the most debated topics at the moment, and traditionally as civil law jurisdiction, the civil procedural rule in China does not expressly provide the anti-suit injunction. And what happened is Chinese courts, all of a sudden, they now are crafting remedies such as anti-suit injunction. So this, I think, is also one way of showing this judicial awakening by the Chinese courts in terms of adopting to this global front game. That's a very convoluted answer to your question. No, no, I appreciate that very much. Um, and it's very interesting to see how 
or to hear how the Chinese courts are kind of adjusting to things that are happening globally and industries that clearly affect them. And Mark, I want to hear from you on that. You're saying the UK courts are not really there, or at least not taking the position that they're there to protect local industry, but are certainly very prepared to take on these global disputes and have orders that have global implications. Are the UK courts open to hearing from the courts of China and other regions as they are adopting or crafting their remedies in these cases, or not so much? So that's a very interesting point, actually. I said before, the UK approach of taking global jurisdiction was somewhat of an interference with comity and the jurisdiction of other courts, you could say. What's the mitigation to that? Well, actually, there is one. What we have from the UK courts so far is the clear guidance. I mean, this is a judicial comment. It's not actually a ruling, but judicial comment that, of course, if by the time the UK court comes to decide on the global portfolio for Android, if by that time there is already a decision, for example, from the Chinese court setting the appropriate Chinese rate, that's, of course, something the UK court should take into account when it sets the portfolio rate. When you put it that way, how could it not? I mean, a global friend rate should be logically no more than a reflection of the national rates justified by the national patent rights. And so if the courts of one of the, the world's top two economies, um, top two consumer markets has said, this is the rate for our country, it would be an odd thing if the UK court disregarded that. Quite how it will be taken into account is the question. And that's where you get into the realms of you know, economic and accounting and uh, licensing expert evidence arguing over exactly what a China rate is and how it can be translated into a global rate. And those are the sorts of things that the UK court is dealing with as a follow-on from the Unwired Planet ruling, along with many others, actually. It turns out there are quite a few issues that you need to work out once you've decided you'll set global licensing rates. There are plenty of follow-on issues relating to patent pools. How do you deal with that? Um, we already well, talked about the anti-suit injunctions. Well, and I stepped on you there a little bit. A couple of questions come from that. The first is maybe more of a comment. The fact that the UK courts are stating that they will take into account other jurisdictions' resolution, including China, at first blush might uh, so clear uh, to our listeners that maybe the East-West global political differences get in the way a bit from doing that. And it's very possible, certainly in my mind, that that would leak into the UK judgments on these things or decisions on these things. I could see, though, and if you could confirm for me that the UK court's willingness to at least state that they're going to consider China judgments um, as they're seeking to resolve these issues can also serve to kind of put China on notice that what they do in their decisions will impact what others do in other jurisdictions. And they should all keep that in mind, is that as you're looking, as everyone is looking at everyone else, decide how they are going to treat these matters that will have impact when those other matters are in the other jurisdiction. Is that part of the assessment as well? Yes, I think that's fair. Certainly from the UK court's perspective, I don't think they were ever trying to create divergence or trying to disregard any other court's jurisdictional decisions. Definitely not. Um, as I said before, they just saw the need from litigants to, for some court to be able to answer this question of you know, what is friend. Uh, and so they did that. But they, I think the UK courts going forward will be continue to be mindful of decisions elsewhere and won't be wanting to create divergence. So that means in reality, we already have seen several cases where parties have sought a Chinese rate because that's important. If you're putting together your global license rate, you'd prioritize the most valuable countries' jurisdictions. And so knowing what your rate is for China is pretty important. Likewise, the US, but um, I think the probably it's a timing issue there 
whether you could get a, a FRAND rate from the US courts, even if the US courts were willing to do it in time, maybe not. The UK court does give this balance of you know, moving reasonably quickly towards a FRAND judgment, but not so quick that it would preclude a, a ruling in China first, depending on how parties, um, how quickly they start their various cases. And the risk is everywhere, clearly. Uh, but David, let's turn to you uh, in the broader EU perspective. You've heard a lot now about the UK court's willingness to listen to China, China's willingness to listen to the rest of the world, everyone, at least these two large regions, working towards convergence, not divergence. EU, with its traditions, on that same route or taking a different approach? Well, there's certainly one topic on which globally continental European countries differ significantly to what has just been explained on both China and the UK, which is anti-suit injunctions. We generally think they're bad. Uh, we think they deprive people from uh, access to justice and that one shouldn't be doing that. We generally treat anti-suit injunctions, I'm simplifying, of course, I'm not covering 27 countries' laws in detail now, but we generally can't consider that anti-suit injunctions are contrary to the most fundamental principles of law. And as a result of that, some European jurisdictions have been willing to react to that in two ways. One of the ways has been to issue anti-anti-suit injunctions, and both German and French courts did that on the basis that anti-suit injunctions were bad. It was not on the basis that the particular facts of the case didn't justify the anti-suit injunction. It was a point of principle that anti-suit injunctions should not be issued in general and should uh, therefore be countered by an anti-anti-suit. The other probably even more powerful reaction that recently came out of the German courts was a ruling by one of the Munich patent courts, which held that any implementer that would seek an anti-suit injunction anywhere in the world would, as of right, be found to be an unwilling licensee in the sense of Huawei versus ZTE, which essentially means that that particular implementer cannot rely on the entire legal framework applicable to SCPs and FRAN at all, and is going to be facing an injunction as soon as the particular patent is found to be infringed and sufficiently valid. So there is an incredibly strong reaction from continental jurisdictions to this notion of anti-suit injunctions. And the risk continues. Uh, well, let's talk a little bit broader now, or more specifically, maybe, about the litigation risks and considerations that automotive litigants need to consider. Jill, let's start with you and get back to the China perspective. What do automotive litigants need to consider concerning SEP litigation and maybe litigation more generally in China? I think it's really good question. And I think litigants in China need to prepare and especially this is a new area, given the fact that no cases have been litigated in China in the automotive market. So of course, you need to be aware of the strategies that have been uh, taken by the existing players that have been litigating the smartphone disputes. Uh, but at the same time, given all the uncertainties, I think one thing that's quite interesting, and there's also a lot of recent talk is about using arbitration actually to resolve front disputes. So arbitration, as we all know, is a private means of dispute resolution and whether it will give them more benefit to the litigants instead of litigating, say, in five or 10 jurisdictions. So this, I think, is an interesting thing. I think new entrants in this litigation area can consider. That's interesting. Um, so much risk that avoiding it entirely might be the way to go. Mark? What's your reaction to that? 
what do automotive litigants need to consider from your UK perspective? Yeah, well, we've talked about the need to, to manage the risk and the, the key is how you do that. I think remember that this business of licensing SEPs is something that the big portfolio owners have been doing for decades now, and they know the, the game and the rules very well. That means that to deal with that, you've got to be well-prepared and re- well-prepared globally. You need to have a clear view as to what your own position on friend is and why. I mean, you've got to be seen to be negotiating in good faith towards a friend license, which means you've got to be able to articulate a view as to what friend is for your products and why it's not going to be good enough to not negotiate and to not constructively engage with the discussion. Because in the end, it will vary by portfolio, but in the end, it is likely you'll be taking a license. The question really is only price. And so have a plan for for engaging with that and taking it forward. But then I guess you also want to avoid being the company that gets sued next. We've seen Daimler litigate at great length and no doubt great expense in relation to SEPs. Um, Most of the industry has stayed clear of it so far. I guess each and every company in the industry wants to avoid the legal costs um, that Daimler has incurred uh, and get to that founder rate in a way that doesn't prejudice their company at all. And so you need a strategy for managing the litigation risk, ideally avoiding the litigation, but if it happens, you've got to be ready for it. And that's a, a global question. David, your perspective from France? Sure. I'd say two things on that. The first one is that, and I think this echoes what Mark just said, is that you cannot overestimate the importance of the pre-litigation phase. And this might seem like 101 of FRAN negotiations, but do respond to letters. It seems obvious, but oftentimes people don't do it. So do respond to them. You can do it aggressively. You can do it in a more friendly tone. You can choose multiple strategies. Not responding in the hope that the problem goes away is not going to do the trick for you. And on the same idea, also don't write or even say anything that you wouldn't like to be quoted in court down the line. We've seen it time and time again. People do say things in the heat of the moment, and it just doesn't look good You know, two years later when it's mentioned in a witness statement. Um, that's number one. Number two is if you actually end up in litigation, then I think the name of the game is probably to try to create uncertainty and risk for the other side. To do that, you might have to think slightly outside the box. You might have to look for creative strategies. You may want to open different fronts. You may want to shoot first. You may want to look at antitrust authorities as a potential assistant for you. The global message is just try to play the game in a different fashion than the other side is trying to play it. That's the way you're going to be able to create uncertainty for them and eventually achieve a settlement on acceptable terms. So, Paul, David's actually hit the nail on the head there, really. The need to negotiate and to do so from the get-go is crucial. One of the issues that we have live in the UK right now is this notion of the unwilling licensee. We, we have a trial going on in the High Court where Optis, which is a set portfolio owner, accuses Apple we all know, of being an unwilling licensee. And Optus argues that Apple can no longer avail of the friend defense at all. In other words, Apple should be subject to an injunction and has lost the right to take a license. Now, that's an extreme interpretation of the law, certainly possibly also the facts uh, in that case. I don't know. But similarly, in, in, in Germany, the courts have taken a quite strong stance on parties' behavior. You see parties who thought they had a perfectly good friend defense and thought they negotiated perfectly fairly uh, being effectively denied a full audience because the court took the view that they were an unwilling licensee. And so from the get-go, you need to be seen to be moving things along. That is critical. 
Mark, that's a very good point. It does raise one more thought, which is what one of the main battles in this space is going to be in the in the close future. And that battle will be who should be taking licenses, especially through the mobile communication patents, whether it should be the car manufacturer, whether it should be the manufacturer of the communication module, whether it should be the person that manufactures the chip that is then integrated into the communication module that is then integrated into the car. This is one of the huge battlefields in this particular space that will probably be fought uh, hardly over the over the next uh, few years. Thank you all very much for walking us through these issues on this global scale. It's clear to me, and I'm sure to our listeners, that the world is changing. And as these SEP issues are addressed court to court to court, that raises uh, risk uh, that needs to be addressed. And it sounds like from all of you, preparation Preparation, preparation is key. So thank you very much. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Paul. Paul.